Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Job chapter 10. In chapter 10, we hear the rest of Job's third speech. Let me remind you of what Old Testament scholar John Hartley said about the speech. He said that in this portion of the dialogue, Job tends to state a position boldly, then abandon it when he sees its difficulty and jumps to another idea, which is also quickly abandoned. His jumping about reflects his frustration at the lack of any insight into the reasons for his plight, closed quote. So while Job's speech is disjointed and filled with emotional hyperbole, nevertheless, we admire Job for continuing to press on in search of answers and in search of God. Every time Job talks his way into a dead end, he turns around and tries something else. He does not abandon his quest, and he does not abandon God. We remember what D.A. Carson said about Job's speeches. He said, for all that Job is prepared to argue with God, he is not prepared to write God off. Job is not the modern agnostic or atheist who treats the problem of evil as if it provided intellectual evidence that God does not exist. Job knows that God exists and believes that he is powerful and good. That is one reason why he is in such confusion Job's agonizings are the agonizings of a believer, not a skeptic, closed quote. So what we're hearing here is faithful searching. This is believing inquiry, but it's painful to listen to nonetheless. Job is running on fumes here, and he is coming to the end of his rope. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Part of the difficulty in following this speech comes from the fact that Job appears to vacillate between speaking to his friends, speaking to himself, and as here, speaking to God. Now, again, we don't expect to see perfect, linear philosophizing from a person in this kind of pain. It just means that we're going to have to pay very close attention here. In verses 1 to 2, Job appears to be defending his right to speak the way he has been and to give voice to his cry of complaint. I will keep on speaking until I get an answer or until God ends my life, he says. And why not? Why wouldn't I? If the worst outcome is that God should strike me dead, I would welcome that. Please, bring it on. Kill me now. I loathe my life. So I'm going to say whatever I want, and you can do your worst. Then in verse 3, and through until the end of the chapter, Job does just that. He speaks to God. He lets it all out. The rest of this chapter is a prayer of complaint and lament. Job is pressing into God and asking him to explain why he should have sent 
such extraordinary suffering. Verse 3, does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? Have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as man sees? Are your days as the days of man or your years as a man's years? That you seek out my iniquity and search for my sin, although you know that I am not guilty and there is none to deliver out of your hand. Here, Job begins to confront the possibility that God is not good. We've mentioned several times that at no point in this dialogue does Job doubt the existence of God. And at no point in the dialogue does he appear to disagree with the basic theological assumptions of his friends. His friends believe that God is sovereign and active and involved in managing the affairs of human beings. He he rewards good behavior and he punishes evil behavior. Job agrees with that assessment. And that is the root of his present concern. Job agrees that his circumstances have been meted out by God. So Job is stuck in a cycle of rational despair in terms of the information that he has at his disposal. If everything we have gives us some indication of God's present disposition towards us, and if all we have is pain, suffering, and agony, then God is against us. But if you haven't done anything that corresponds with what you've experienced, then at some point you have to face the possibility that God is an evil tyrant. And that is what Job is doing here. C.S. Lewis wrestled with this in his book, A Grief Observed. Many of you will know that Lewis married late in life, and was surprised by the joy of this unexpected romance. It was like his whole world came alive with color and beauty, and then just as suddenly as it came, God took it away. His wife got cancer and died, and Lewis wrestled with what all of that said about God. He began to keep a journal to record his thoughts, his agonies, and his inner dialogue, and that journal then later became a book called A Grief Observed. It more or less traces out Job's journey in its entirety. And Lewis says at this point in his journey, sooner or later, I must face the question in plain language. What reason have we, except our desperate wishes, to believe that God is, by any standard we conceive, good? Doesn't all the prima facie evidence suggest exactly the opposite? What have we to set against it? He goes on to answer his own question in a way that Job could not. Lewis writes, we set Christ against it. Lewis says that the only compelling argument in this broken and dying world for the goodness of the Creator God is the incarnation and suffering of Jesus Christ. That God did that for us, to redeem us, to restore us, to rescue us, and return us to Himself, that proves that God is good. But 
all the other evidences and experiences we accumulate in this life argue otherwise. Lewis, too, agonized as a believer. But Lewis had the New Testament. Lewis had Christ. And Job does not. Job just has all the other evidence. And so he is struggling. He is wondering here if God is really good. He says in verse 8, Your hands fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay, and will you return me to the dust? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. Yet these things you hid in your heart. I know that this was your purpose. Job says that on the one hand, you were so careful and so loving in making me, but on the other hand, you are now just as careful and just as dedicated in breaking me. So who are you, God? Are you the good God who gave me life or the wicked God who is grinding me into the dust? I don't know anymore. Verse 14, if I sin, you watch me and do not acquit me of my iniquity. If I am guilty, woe to me. If I am in the right, I cannot lift up my head for I am filled with disgrace and look on my affliction. And were my head lifted up, you would hunt me like a lion and again work wonders against me. You renew your witnesses against me and increase your vexation toward me, you bring fresh troops against me. Here, Job says basically that he's damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. If I sin, I know you will come for me and knock me down into the dust. But apparently, living righteously doesn't protect me from suffering the same fate anyway. I haven't done anything, but I am still knocked down in the dust. And if I did raise my head, you would just come by and smack me down again. Verse 18. Why did you bring me out of the womb? Would that I had died before any eye had seen me and were as though I had not been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone, that I may find a little cheer before I go. And I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom like thick darkness, like deep shadow without any order where light is as thick darkness. Job here sounds a lot like the preacher in Ecclesiastes again. Having been beaten down by life, the best he can think of is just a little moment to enjoy a small pleasure or two before the blackness and finality of death. Leave me alone so that I can find a little cheer. Just back 
off for a week or two. Let me drink a glass of wine, see a sunrise, get a good night's sleep, watch a child play. Give me one week and then let me slide down into the dark. Job can't seem to imagine here much more than oblivion for those who pass on from this life. But right now to Job, oblivion sounds like a pretty good deal. Now, scholars debate back and forth among themselves as to how much people in Job's day knew about heaven and hell. We aren't sure, and the conversation is ongoing. But one thing is clear, and that is that Job believes more about those things as the story goes on. Job's faith grows as he wrestles his way through these horrific circumstances. We can see growth in two critical areas. In this speech back in chapter 9, Job expressed his first vague hope for some kind of mediator, some kind of advocate that might stand between him and God and make peace. We will also observe growth in Job's belief in some kind of life after death. Both of those beliefs will achieve a much more mature expression in chapter 19, verse 25, when Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. But Job isn't there yet. Here in this speech, Job is at the bottom. And sometimes that's where you have to get to in order to find the faith that brings you back to the surface. It was that way for Jonah, and it was that way for Brother Job as well. Here he is at the very bottom of the ocean of despair. And whether he believes it or not, the Lord is there with him. He sees, he knows, he cares, and he is good. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile one is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. 
Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 